temperature rising higher higher burning through my soul stop and ask yourself this question. How does that make me feel singing that song in the sanctuary before the altar of the covenant at the high point in worship? Okay? Now just think about it. The good, bad. Okay, turn to three or four other people and tell them what you're thinking, okay? Introduce yourself and then just tell them. And look, if you say, I don't know, I'm confused, those are all correct answers, all right? Okay, that's enough fellowship for now. No deep psychology. But a few people just tell me, uh, how did that make you feel? Did you think that was good or bad? Fantastic. 
Fantastic for Andy, okay. Yeah, Wayne? I thought you raised your hand, Wayne. Hey, Wayne. <laughs> other, other things, good, bad. Does it make you feel a little bit nervous? I mean, be honest. As a pastor, it made me feel a little bit nervous. <laughs> like, oh, dang, I'm... We're used to me. I'm not used to me, so I don't know why you should be used to me. Um, but did you feel kind of like, gosh, I, I hope we don't get in trouble for this. Um, is God going to smoke us? Uh, but it, it, it does raise a little bit of ambivalence, right, at times. Um, I, I think uh, for most people it would. Maybe not for us. We've been around a little while. Um, but yeah. It's a strange place to sing that song. 3,000 years ago, a high priest walked out onto a raised platform. At his side was a young woman dressed in a robe. Surrounding him were hundreds of peasant farmers. He called out to the farmers and he said, whoever grows the best crop of barley and oats and wheat this year can have her to the glory of God. And then she dropped her robe, standing there entirely naked, this beautiful virgin. Sometimes they were sacrificed, but this time she began to dance luridly to the sound of drumbeats. And after the dance was over, they covered her and took her away, and then sacred prostitutes came forward. And men left their wives in order to perform their duties with these sacred prostitutes to the glory of their God, Baal. Now, of course, that's not an exact account, but it is based upon historical evidence. Baal was a Mesopotamian fertility god. In Hebrews, the word means possessor. Cultic prostitution was a normal part of the worship of Baal. Throughout history, religion has been closely associated with sexuality. It was certainly true in biblical times. Andrew Greeley wrote, wrote this. The most fundamental insight that the primitive man had about sexuality is one that we frequently overlook or forget, that it is a raw, primal, basic power over which we have very limited control. It's a mystery. Primitive man invariably viewed sexuality as sacred. Well, I certainly don't think it's only primitive man, right? I mean, in our modern society, sex has really become something of a religion, complete with high priests and priestesses, Dr. Ruth, Dr. Freud, Dr. Kinsey, Reverend Hefner. <laughs> and you know, human religion, religion is largely the way that we control and understand mysteries. For much of uh, history, the church has viewed sex as a rival religion, and we really don't know quite what to do with this profound and powerful mystery. According to historian John Boswell, the church put so many restrictions on sexual activity in the Middle Ages that for all but 44 days of the entire year, sexual relations between married couples were forbidden. I mean, it's no wonder that there were just 
roving bands of stressed out barbarian types attacking people in the Middle Ages, you know. I mean, that would be frustrating. For much of history, the church has viewed sex, uh, you see, as unclean. And many have believed that the knowledge of good and evil is sexual knowledge, so that the first and original sin was sexual intercourse. And because the church viewed sex as bad, she adopted a strategy of repression and denial. But repression often leads to indulgence. Don't think about sex. Don't think about, don't think about sex. Don't think about sex. Don't think about sex until all you think about is sex. And then you cover those thoughts in shame and live out of your shame, and everything is bad. A few years ago, a woman at my last church wrote me a letter informing me that she was leaving due to hunka hunka burning love references. So see, I have reason. She was leaving due to sexual references and sermons. She said they made her, quote, uncomfortable and grieved her spirit. Ironically, I learned that this woman really struggled with promiscuity. You see, her strategy was repression. And I think it resulted in indulgence, led to indulgence, and everything became bad. One man used to always tell me dirty jokes in the parking lot. And then he would get visibly upset when I mentioned anything sexual in the sanctuary. At youth group, I got the idea when I was a kid that sex was dirty and at best unimportant, and that's why we should save it for the person that we marry. <laughs> now, let me say we should save it for the person that we marry, but is that the reason that it's bad? So what is sex? Good, bad, and should we sing hunka hunka burning love in the sanctuary? Recently, I was reading a popular Christian author bemoaning how sex had become like a religion for so many modern pe people. And, and, and it's obvious that this author is uh, an evangelical Protestant, for he writes about how strange it is when people in some churches take communion and, quote, lovingly hold and distribute tiny bits of bread and drops of wine, and then he writes this, in religion, simple things become infused with a greater meaning. They gain a fascination and an emotional importance far beyond their practical function. So it is with sex in our time. It has become a sacrament. See, I think he's saying that just as some people make such a big deal of press pieces of bread and drops of wine, so in the same way we've made such a big deal of sex. For sex is just body and blood. Like communion is just bread and wine. Sex is just biology. But sadly, he says, it's gained a fascination and an emotional importance far beyond its practical function. He's saying our problem is that folks make too much of sex. We turn it into a sacrament. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to pray. 
because I know from my history that this topic stresses people out. And Lord God, I would like you to guard our hearts right now. I thank you for breathing on us. And I ask you to breathe your fire all around us. Send your fire around your city and let it be a fire in our midst that would burn away all the lies of the evil one. And Lord Jesus, would you let us hear only you. Purify us and show us yourself, Lord Jesus. And help us understand these strange things that you've written into our very bodies. In your name we pray. Amen. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make Adam, that means man, mankind, in our image and likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, it's not explicit. But I pretty much think that would involve some sort of sex. In fact, this is the very first commandment we read in all of Scripture. The ancient Jews taught that it was the first law of Scripture. Sex. Genesis 2. Scripture gets into details. Verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Now, Eden means delight. It was a walled paradise garden, a safe place for good things to just run wild. Verse 18, God says it's not good for the Adam to be alone. And yet, like we talked about, Adam isn't really alone, is he? Adam is in the presence of God. Adam's in the presence of love himself. I don't think Adam, mankind, understands how God feels and what he wants and what life in paradise is all about. You see, Adam is made for God. God is our helper, Scripture says over and over again, and we're his bride. Verse uh, 23. So the Lord God caused uh, a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, oh, <laughs> wow, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, says the scripture, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, the New Testament tells us that that refers to Christ and his church. So our marriage covenants are a picture of God's covenant with us in Christ. And like a walled garden contains delight, like the stone temple contained the eternal fire, like these bodies of flesh contain the very spirit, the breath of God, so a covenant contains a sacrament a fire, a spiritual union of delight. Next verse. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Dang. 
I think that means sex. And the sex is profoundly, deeply, mysteriously good. Do you understand? This all happens before the fall. So sex isn't the cause of the fall. Sex isn't the result of the fall. Sex is more like a vestige of life from before the fall ever happened. A vestige of Eden bound in a covenant like a walled garden. But is it only a vestige, you know, like a distant memory? Or is it maybe also kind of like a promise? I mean, what is sex now? What is cleaving? You know, in biblical times, a couple would go through a wedding ceremony, and then they'd go to the wedding chamber. It was something that was set up right there at the wedding party. And the, quote, friend of the bridegroom would stand outside the door of the wedding chamber waiting to hear the bridegroom's voice. For when the bridegroom consummated the wedding, he would yell to the friend of the bridegroom who would yell to the party, they did it! And they'd start to party and they'd party on all into the night and all the next week for they had consummated their marriage. (laughs) When John the Baptist was told of Jesus baptizing his followers, you know what he said? (sighs) The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears, rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. And now my joy is full. So what is sex in the covenant of marriage? Well, it's a communion that consummates the covenant. It's a sign and a seal. It's an outward expression of inward realities. It's a means of grace through which life is transmitted and fruit is born. It's word made flesh. It's love made flesh. And it's a mystery, mysterion in Greek, sacramentum in Latin. See, what I just described is a great theological definition of a sacrament. You know, when you come to the communion table, you partake of the sacrament of the covenant. It's a sign and seal of the eternal covenant of grace. It's the outward expression of inward realities. It's a means of grace through which life is transmitted and fruit is born. It's word made flesh, it's love made flesh, it's a mystery of grace. It is the body and blood of your groom, which you receive into the most empty, restless, yearning parts of your soul, parts which you once covered in shame, but which now receive eternal seed and bear the fruit of eternal life. Common bread and wine do gain a fascinating and emotional importance far beyond their practical function because Jesus is in them. And so Scripture tells us if you come to the table and fail to discern the body and blood of Christ, the very thing meant to give you life can kill you. Not because it's bad, but because your perception is bad. 
Well, that's something to ponder. But you see that author I quoted, I think he had an unbiblical view of sex. For I think he had an unbiblical view of communion. And so the modern problem is not that we've made too much of sex. The modern problem is that we've made far too little. I mean, we don't discern the sacrament. We don't recognize what it is. And modern society has not turned sex into a sacrament, for it was made a sacrament from the beginning. Not a sacrament of our covenant with God, but a sacrament of the covenant of marriage. But now get this. Because the marriage covenant is to be a picture of God's covenant, the sacrament of the marriage covenant ought to be a picture of the sacrament of God's covenant, right? In other words, God made us male and female. God gave us all these confusing urges and longings also that we'd understand how God feels and what he wants and what life in paradise, the kingdom, is all about. Sex is an education. A little girl went to her grandmother one day and said, Grandma, how old are you? And the grandma said, Honey, that's an impolite thing to ask a grown-up how old she is. So the little girl went away. The next day she came back and she said, Grandma, how much do you weigh? And grandma said, Honey, that's an impolite thing to ask a grown-up. And so she went away. The next day, she came to Grandma, and she had a smile on her face, and she said, Grandma, I know how old you are, and I know how much you weigh. You're 64, and you weigh 140 pounds. And Grandma looked at her, and she said, how did you know that? And the little girl said, well, Grandma, I found your license. It was sitting on the table, and I read it. And she said, oh, honey, that's, that's wonderful. And the girl said, that's right. And I also saw on your driver's license that you flunked sex. <laughs> Grandma, you got an F in sex. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I do think this is true, that I think the modern church kind of gets an F in sex. I mean, we haven't discerned the body. We haven't discerned Christ's body, and we haven't discerned our own bodies. And now I want you all to listen very closely. I mean, this is really important to me. I'm not saying that you have to have sex, as in sexual intercourse, to understand God. No one understood God better than Jesus when he walked this earth and he was single. I'm certainly not saying that you have to have sex to understand God, yet maybe you do need sex as in male and female, as in sexual feelings and urges. Uh, maybe you do need that to best understand God. Maybe you need frustrations and desires and loneliness and longings for communion to best understand God, how he feels and what he wants. So if you're frustrated with this topic, I hope you realize that I'm a pastor, okay? So I do get around a little bit. 
I hope you realize that everyone is sexually frustrated. Some have been really hurt by sex, and so now they're terrified of their own desires. Some long for sexual relationships and they can't have them and they shouldn't have them. Some long uh, for the desire, just the ability to have it like they used to and now they mourn that it's gone or it's going. Some are frustrated because their desires are confused and they don't understand why they go this way and that way. But for all of us, this is so difficult to talk about because it taps into desires and longings that we can just hardly bear. But you see, in all these things, in fulfillments and in longings and yearnings, God is telling us something about himself. The sacrament of the covenant tells us something. Our sexuality is a sign. It's a message built into our bodies. The problem isn't that we've made too much of the sign. The problem is that we've made too little of what it points to. And if you think that it points to nothing, then you see the sign means nothing. It's just bread and wine, just body and blood, just biology. But a sacrament is a sign and a seal. A sacrament seals things. It takes two things and makes them one. It consummates a covenant and seals it. You know, if you bump arms with a person, just walking through a crowd, nothing happens. That's because you really can't wear your heart on your sleeve. You wear your heart somewhere else. And you see, we cover that somewhere else with clothes to protect our hearts. We call them private parts. And when two people join private parts, they fuse private hearts as well, and two become one. So to sleep around is to make a covenant and break a covenant over and over again. It's to take two hearts and fuse those hearts and then tear them apart and fuse them, tear them apart and fuse them and tear them apart over and over again until hearts are broken and hard and lives are destroyed. You know, when Israel worshipped other gods, didn't God didn't call it bad theology. <laughs> what did he call it? Idolatry. And what did he call idolatry? Adultery. Over and over again, he said to Israel, why do you go whoring after these other gods? Do you understand? They didn't just disobey. They broke God's heart. Jesus Christ and him crucified is God's broken heart. And so you see, the broken heart of every lover in this room, the broken heart of every lover in this world, it tells us something about the broken heart of God. It tells us how God feels and what he wants. Sacraments help us to know things deeper than words, right? I mean, that's deeper than if someone just breaks an agreement with you. They put flesh on word. And we all have feelings for which words just are not adequate. I think that's why there are so many songs and poems and uh, so many words about romantic love. People trying to wrap some meat around it, those words, and none of the words are, are adequate. So guys, I, I can't fully describe it, but, but I think you know that passionate longing for a woman. Right? 
that feeling that nothing else matters. That yearning that makes it seem worth absolutely everything to be with her, to be one with her, to be in her. And you think, no one understands. No one knows. Well, God knows. Because that's how he feels about you. That's what he's telling you. Isaiah 61, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And women, you know that longing to be covered? That longing to be nurtured and cherished and filled, that yearning that makes it seem worth absolutely everything to receive him, to be one with him. And you think, no words can describe. But you see, your very body is describing. God wants you to know. He made you for himself. So the sacrament of the marriage covenant helps us understand what God wants in his covenant. He wants us. And even more, he wants our weakness. He wants our incompleteness. Now, this is shocking and it's weird, but he wants what we are tempted, the very thing we are tempted to cover in shame. W.B. Yeats wrote this. I love this quote. Love has pitched its tent in the place of excrement. Isn't that weird? I know. If you're in junior high, you should laugh. <laughs> but think about it. Because, I mean, this, this just shocks me. But when bride and groom make love, they are attracted to that very place of which they are most embarrassed and feel most shame. That place where their difference, incompleteness, and need is exposed. Did you know that you are incomplete without God? Did you know that you really need God? That you're empty without God and that that emptiness has manifested itself in this world as sin? And did you know God's word became flesh to meet you in that very place? Jesus is the helper fit for you, his bride. You see, I think he is like aroused by the confession of sin. Aroused by surrendered shame. Aroused by his bride who no longer hides but stands before him broken and exposed in need. He longs to meet our need with himself. He is grace and flesh, the helper fit for us. Do you see what I'm saying? God has built the gospel into our very bodies from the foundation of the world. He built Eden into our flesh even before the fall in order that we'd long for home even in the midst of our exile. You see, great sex is a taste, a momentary taste of Eden, a taste, a picture of life in the kingdom. Think about it. Obeying God in this world is really a drag, isn't it? I mean, pretty much. Just be honest. Don't disagree with me. I'm the pastor. I mean, it's, it's just not all that much fun. I mean, dying to myself is a drag. Losing myself is painful. Another person's pleasure is often my sorrow. 
Another person's gain is often my loss. And so I want control, even though it's hard to get. In this world, being humiliated, exposed, and naked is not fun. Obedience to another's wishes is usually a drag, and bearing fruit is always hard work. In this fallen world, God's command is a huge burden, (laughs) except for a few moments. A few moments in the sanctuary of my covenant, celebrating the sacrament of my covenant with Susan, my bride, for in moments of sexual ecstasy, ecstasis in the Greek, I like die to myself, (laughs) but live. I lose myself, but find myself in joy. I surrender control in joy, and Susan's pleasure is actually my pleasure. Her gain is actually my gain. Being exposed and vulnerable, oh, that's a delight. And obedience to her wishes is paradise. It's like C.S. Lewis wrote, obedience is an erotic necessity. And then the most amazing thing of all, this just blows my mind. (laughs) This is how babies are made. (laughs) I mean the most beautiful, profound, wonderful fruit that I will ever produce. That's how. You see, in those moments of sexual ecstasy, I fulfill the entire law. What I mean is I I love God and I love my neighbor, unconscious of myself, lost in joy. (laughs) Then it's gone. So the sacrament of my covenant with Susan tells me how God feels, what he wants, and I think it's meant to give me a taste, just a taste, of life in the kingdom, the consummated kingdom. And it helps me understand what God is doing here and now. Now think about this with me for a moment because I think this is fascinating. Has it ever occurred to you that the very same activity in particular, sexual intercourse, the very same event is sometimes described as heaven and sometimes described as hell. Sometimes love and sometimes hate. Sometimes ecstasy and sometimes rape. The same event. The same Event, same, except for the intentions and perceptions of those involved. In fact, right now, some of you are perceiving this message as really good news, ecstatic news, and some of you are perceiving it as something more like rape. Don't go there, Peter. Don't talk about that, Peter. Please don't poke that wound, Peter. Why is that? Well, God made Adam, mankind, male and female, so they would complete each other, help each other, and begin to understand how he completes us and helps us. God is our helper. But in the next chapter, Adam and Eve meet the snake. 
And they are tempted to complete themselves with something other than God. The snake rapes their hearts. He does not love them. You see, he wants to possess them. He is the energy behind Baal, the possessor. And you see, in the absence of God, we worship something. We worship other gods, and those other gods use sex to possess our hearts and shut them down. Shut them down, why? So that when the king of glory appears, we will hide in shame. So that when he kisses our cheeks, it will feel like rape. So that when he gives us his body and blood, we'll... Nail him to the tree because we just don't understand. And yet, even that is part of the plan. He said it. And when I am lifted up, speaking of his cross, when I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw, I will romance all men unto myself. Do you know that all of history is his story, the story of the great romance, how Eve is romanced and redeemed by the ultimate Adam, Jesus the Christ. I mean, you need to remember that for the rest of the book. The scriptures are packed with sexual imagery. The Song of Solomon is an erotic love poem. Steve Moore is, in fact, writing a book on it and going to do a class on it in January, and you should go. Israel is a picture of God's prostitute bride who becomes the bride of Christ. Time itself comes to an end at the marriage supper of the Lamb as the bride of Christ calls out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. History is the romance of God through Jesus the Christ so that when the King of glory, our helper, appears, we won't hide from his presence but surrender to ecstasy. So we won't be burned by the fire, but we'll drink the fire. So we won't perceive his presence as rape, but we will love the glory of his appearing, his epiphany. God says it this way through the prophet Hosea. Listen to this. This is so beautiful. Chapter 2. Speaking of Israel, she went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. You see, we think that he is like Baal, the possessor, when he longs to be our husband. And in this world, Satan tries. He tries to wed us to Baal, the possessor. So we'll shut down our hearts thinking Jesus, our helper, is a possessor too. But you see, this is the truth. Jesus will not rape us. Sometimes that frustrates us. He will not rape us. He will only romance us. So he won't know us in the biblical sense till we choose to be known. And we can't truly know him until we choose to surrender to him in faith. For if we don't surrender in faith, we perceive his presence as rape. And then we trap ourselves in our own darkness. 
or hell. Believing a lie that we bear in our very flesh. So you see, it really matters what you do with your sex life. For it's the great sign pointing to the kingdom. And Satan wants to turn it into a sign pointing to trouble, pointing to hell. And yet even there, your bridegroom will pursue you. Through Hosea, God says, I will allure her. I will speak tenderly to her. The valley of trouble, I will make a door of hope. And you will call me my husband and no longer my Baal. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know, you shall know the Lord. That's really know. You shall know the Lord. That's what God wants. That's how God feels. That's what life in the kingdom in paradise is all about. That's what God is doing in this world of space and time. A few years ago, in a sermon, I I shared how I thought God was preparing us all for this ecstatic communion of which sex was simply a, a pointer, that it pointed to it. After the sermon, this woman who's now a friend of mine sent me an email, and she described this incredible encounter with Jesus that she had where he appeared to her in a dorm room at a retreat center. He reminded her of several wounds and places of shame in her life. And uh, then she says the Holy Spirit filled each place with health and purity. That's how she described it. And then she writes this. When we were done, Jesus was sitting by my side on the little twin bed. He had the sweetest smile though the distinct features of his face were a little fuzzy. He he leaned toward me, and I kind of froze. I thought, what the heck is he doing? Am I going mad, or is he about to kiss me? Which is kind of funny when you realize he knew what I was thinking. Well, anyway, he leaned toward me and went into me. Just like you described it yesterday in this sermon, he went right into me, and I was filled with a joy and a glory so overwhelming, I pulled away in shock. He just chuckled at me while I cried and apologized for freaking out. And he said, that's okay. We have time. (laughs) I love that. That's okay. We have time. You see, I think that's what time is for. Time is for romancing our hearts into surrender so that we would surrender to God's grace in faith and be filled with God for an eternity of joy. And because God has built the gospel into our very bodies, he's using all these longings, all these desires, all these memories, all these yearnings and hopes to reveal his intentions and transform our perceptions so you would receive him in an ecstatic and eternal joy that constitutes the kingdom of heaven. The sacrament of the covenant of marriage, you see, is a picture of the communion in the eternal covenant that is heaven. So we haven't made too much of sex. I think we've made too little, which makes too little of what it points to. And you see, our strategy is not repression or indulgence. Our strategy is always worship. 
It's seeing God and worshiping God in everything, even in, especially in, our sexuality. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, writes Paul. This mystery, this mysterion in Greek, this sacramentum in Latin, this sacramentum is a profound one. And I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Cleaving, joining, two becoming, oneing refers to Christ and the church. That's what it refers to. And that means that every love song ever written was somehow about Jesus and us. So, does burning love belong in church? Does burning love belong in the sanctuary of the covenant? What is God? Well, he is love, right? And he is fire. He is a hunk of burning love, longing to fill his temple, which is you. So on the night he was betrayed, that night, when he was exposed, humiliated, broken by his bride, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body. Take, eat. Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this is the covenant. This cup is the covenant. Some say new covenant. Hebrews refers to it as the eternal covenant. This is the covenant in my blood. Shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Do it in remembrance of me. And so I invite you to come to the table. You're going to tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. The dark cups are wine. The light cups are juice. But you see, they're both fire. They're both the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And so as you come to the table, this is what you're doing. You're surrendering yourself. You're surrendering your emptiness. You're surrendering your need. You're surrendering your desires and your longings. You're surrendering all that you are and asking him to fill you. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's what it is to be a believer. And if you're worried about all your longings and all your struggles and all your incompleteness in this world, well, just hang on to your seat. Because <laughs> very soon, very soon, he will come and you will see him. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen. And what that means is this. You're his body in this world. And now you may be thinking to yourself, hey, dude, um, I came forward, took that bread and that wine, and it's no big deal. Tasted like bread and wine. So I don't know that I get it. Well, you just hang in there. Have faith. He really is here. Uh, then why isn't he just like burning us up, you know? Uh, well, he's romancing us. He's preparing us. And he gives us glimpses. Um, several years ago, I told you about my experience in Canada. I mean, literally, 
I was once pinned to the floor. I could not move. It felt like God was just going to break my arms, and I was absolutely loving it. And a million volts of electricity were shooting through my body because the burning love was all over me. And I remember thinking to myself in absolute joy and ecstasy, I remember thinking, God, this is incredible, but if you turn it up any higher, I'll die. I'll be happy, but I'll die. He's preparing you. And so now he gives you his word. He gives you his spirit. But that's not where it ends. Listen to Paul. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, take strength, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that, so that, get this, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. <laughs> That's big. Believe the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.